Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 274. We are in the last days of the month of Menachemov, quickly approaching the month of Elul. Yes, the awesome month of Elul, which is the last month of the Hebrew year, when we count not by the lunar cycle, but by the annual cycle that starts with Tishrei, meaning not from... Chedesh Nisan, which then Elul is, of course, the, 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 the sixth month, but the conclusion of the year and the preparation for the new year of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and Sukkot Tishrei. So, of course, most appropriate is to begin with what is timely. As I pointed out a number of times, when you look at the calendar, the Jewish calendar, it's a fascinating, remarkable document more than a document, more than a calendar that just measures time and gives us the ability to schedule uh, uh, appointments and schedule our, uh, our daily routines, it also is a mirror image that reflects the cycles of life. So if you think of month of Av as a month of sadness, especially the beginning of the month, till the ninth of Av, uh, then from that sadness we begin the process of comforting and consolation, which we're now in, the weeks, the seven weeks of Shiva de Nechemta, the seven weeks of consolation, of comfort, that leads right into Rosh Hashanah. But the story doesn't just begin there. The story actually begins months ago when the Jewish people left Egypt and became a nation after 210 years of suffering, horrible and terrible genocide and bondage. So on the 15th of Nisan, the Jewish people leave Egypt. Mitzrayim is what? Leaving our limitations, our constraints. So every one of us in life will go through this process of leaving our limited place and experiencing some transcendence. Everybody on their own level. 49, 50 days later, count 49 days of the Omer, 50 days later, we arrive at Sinai, receive the mandate from God, the blueprint for life. And here too, Transcendence is beautiful, but you need to turn that into a concretized system, and hence the mandate called the blueprint Torah. Forty days after that, Moshe Rabbeinu returns with the first set of the tablets. What day is that? The 17th of Tammuz. And he sees that the Jewish people built a golden calf. In our personal cycle of life, it would mean that after we experience transcendence and freedom, after we receive the blueprint, we betray our own selves and our own destiny and our own mission and mandate. And we do so with great peril, terrible experience, but all is not lost. Moshe does indeed break the tablets in order to save the Jewish people, as we've discussed a number of times, because that was the contract. And he goes back on the mountain on the 17th of Thomas for another 40 days. That 40-day period is right now, we're in that 40-day period, coming to the conclusion of it. Why does he go back up? He already received the tablets. He goes up to besiege God to forgive the people. So this would include the 17th of Thomas, the three weeks, it includes the nine days, Tishabov, and the days subsequent to that, all the way till when is 40 days from the 17th of Thomas to Rosh Chedeshal, there are two opinions when he goes back a third time, whether it's the first day of Rosh Chedesh, which would be next Shabbos, or the second day of Rosh Chedesh, which would be next Sunday. But that's not relevant to our discussion. 
And it says these were not pleasant days. These were not days where he was successful. How does that play itself in our, our lives? That after a uh, betrayal, after a violation, after a betrayal of ourselves, of our destiny, of our mandate, of our commitments, we begin the process of trying to heal. But it doesn't come easily because it was a very serious betrayal. It wasn't a small matter. They had built a golden calf. They replaced God with a piece of gold, with money, with power, with ego. So it's not a small process, not an easy process. And then he comes back down. So right now Moshe is finishing his second days of 40, second period of 40 days, comes back down and goes back a third time. Shchedesh Elul, first or second day of Shchedesh, in other words, either the 30th of Av or the first of Elul. He goes back a third time, count 40 days from Shchedesh Elul, 30 days of Elul, 10 days of Tishrei, is 40. Yom Kippur, the 10th of Tishrei, so on Rosh Hashanah, technically, Moshe Rabbeinu was up on the mountain the third time. That's where he was Rosh Hashanah that year. And Yom Kippur, he returns, and this time he's successful. Successful with what? Successful with gaining forgiveness. And we say it every year. Yom Kippur night, right after Kol Nidre, three times, that Hashem says, Salachti kitvarecha. I have forgiven them as you have spoken. So Moshe, we don't just say God forgave, but it came through initiative of maybe the greatest event in all of history, a human being arguing with God and not taking no for an answer and breaking down the door until he succeeds. And he gave us that single most powerful force in life called hope. So you look at this, you look at this story, the cycle, you just look at the cycle, this calendar, and it's fascinating, it's, it's, it's awesome how it reflects life. Who hasn't gone through all these stages? We all have our transcendence. We follow our blueprint. We all fall. And then we try to correct and heal. And what's the end of the story? We can heal. He comes back with the second tablets, which in some way are even greater than the first. And from then on, we have the holiest day of the year, Yom Kippur, the ability to constantly re, 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 regain and reclaim that which was lost or broken. So whatever part of life you're in, whether you're in, in the stage of innocence or a stage of loss of innocence or a stage of regrets and, and concerns and anxiety over the mistakes we've made, this cycle, this calendar is there exactly for us. So here we go from Pesach to Shavuos is 50 days, three sets of 40 days, 120, 170 days, essentially half a year covers this journey. This ups and downs from Pesach, concluding with Yom Kippur. And of course, after Yom Kippur comes the celebration of what we have gained and reclaimed, which is the celebration of Sukkot leading to the climax and to the apex of it on Shminatzeres and Simchas So there you can add another 13 days, four days between Yom Kippur and Sukkot, and then all the way till the end of Simchas almost the end of Tishrei. So you have over 185 days of the year, this whole cycle at as I said, mirrors and reflects who we are. This is this, when studying this and learning about it and seeing its power, it's one of the things that motivated me to write the book, 60 Days, A Spiritual Guide to the High Holidays. Literally that as a journey through these two awesome months of El and Tishrei, day by day, this journey covering the entire spectrum of life experiences. So there you have Aksidus applied. Aksidus discussed at length every step of the way. 
So as we go from the end of Av into El, as I've cited a number of times, the Shalah that the Tzemach Tzedek brings, the Rebbe also cites it, and Aryeh, the mazel of this month of Av, Aryeh, from the mazel, from the sign and the power of this month, the Leo, lion, creates El, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Heshayinah Rabbah. Aryeh is an acronym for those four periods in time. So you see there again the story. It's not just a continuation, a continuum. It actually, one gives birth to the other. So the Aryeh, which could be seen as such a negative thing, the destruction of the temple through Aryeh and Nebuchadnezzar is compared to that lion who destroyed the lion. In the month of the lion, Al-Nasti Yalkut says, in order that the lion, referring to God, comes and rebuilds the lion, the third temple, in the, in the um, period of in the lion, which would be of, but that gives birth to Elul, Shoshana Yom Kippur and Heshana Rabbah, which is the conclusion essentially of Yom Kippur, the chsima, the sealing of the, of the destiny of our lives next year. So this is where we are right now, the conclusion of El, the second, the last, the last days of Meshur Rabbeinu's 40th, second period of 40 days on the mountain, preparing ourselves for next Shabbos this year, Shabbos is Rosh We blessed the Rosh yesterday. And this coming, this coming Shabbos will be the first day of the Shabbos, which then leads to the second day. So you have again, Elul is the 30th day of Av and the first day of Elul. So you see an interface because everything is one story. It's one narrative. So even when you're in an Av experience, it immediately is also the first day of El, the I should say. And that teaches us that no matter where you are in your roller coaster of your life, you have a place to be able to grow, to be able to reconcile, to be able to build. And there's no such thing as hopeless, God forbid. So that's the overall lesson from this period. This coming Shabbos will also be the A. So one thought on the Pasha, the A on Nechi of Nechamayim, Behold, I give you before you today uh, the blessing and the opposite of blessing. These are, of course, the words that Meshe Rabbeinu uttered and spoke the last 37 days of his life in this world. When he began speaking in the beginning of Pasha Dvarim until Zayin Adar, when Meshe would go up, go up on Har Nevoi as the end of Mishnah Teirah, the end of this book, will tell us. So we're now in Pasha A, the fourth chapter of this book. And um, one beautiful thought, powerful thought, you say Nason is always refers to Nason means to bestow, to give, like a matona. Matona is called the giving of. Anyone who gives, gives with a good eye. So it's a pleasant thing to give a gift. So the question, the obvious question is okay, to give a gift of blessing makes sense. The blessing. But how could you refer to, refer to the opposite of a blessing as a gift? What kind of gift is that? It's the opposite of a gift. And the Rebbe explains that the gift is the clarity to know what is a blessing and what is not a blessing. So when you're traveling down the road of life and you come to a crossroads and you don't know which way is the right way to go, should you go to the right or to the left? And someone tells you, go this path, this will lead you to beautiful things, that's of course a blessing. But what happens if they don't tell you? They tell you, don't take this path because it can lead you to terrible things to destructive things. That's an equal blessing because it's clarity. So the gift that is here is not, God forbid, the opposite of blessing. To know what's opposite of blessing. 
And that's the gift that God gives us, both to know what to do and also what to avoid doing. Because in a healthy life, you need both. You need to know how to plant the seeds to make sure the flowers grow, but you also have to know how to weed the garden to make sure there are no impediments and negative influence that can stunt and, be a, and block the flowers to emerge. So in psychologically and emotionally in our personal lives, we have mitzvah sasa, we have leisasa. And mitzvah sasa tells us what to do, what's appropriate, but you also want to know what not to do, what to avoid doing. And both are equal blessing. So the Eyanechem Nesem Fnechem Mayim gives us that message. It's a tremendous message in so many ways in our lives. <clears throat> Sometimes you go for advice. You don't just want to know what to do. You also want to know what to avoid doing. That's what good professionals will tell you. Things that people who've been there already, who've gone through an experience, they can tell you, don't try that. That will not work. Try this. So that's the blessing of this week's chapter. And of course, as we're preparing to go into Elul, that's what we're looking for. Elul is a month of cheshben, a month of accounting, and a month of preparation for the new year. So we're looking to have the clarity to correct. So sometimes we know what needs to be done. Sometimes we, we but we don't know what, not need, what not needs to not be done. And many times we're in denial, or we're ignorant, or we minimize. So it's critical to know in Elul both things, to know how to, to heal and do things that are proper, that help and are conducive to healing, but also know what are the things that also impede the healing process. And here I talk healing, I mean in the personal and emotional and spiritual level. Okay, the cross-reference, which I always do, because this is a program that's been going on for six years, so you can imagine for six years we've covered many of the topics, Elul and A. So I cross-reference this to episode 79, 129, 175, 224. So there in those episodes, which can all be found at chassidahsupply.com, a new site dedicated to this, to the resources for this program and related, you can find these uh, archives in their entirety. They're also time-stamped on the YouTube desktop or laptop version, so you can actually find the exact place where the piece you're looking for. In addition, there's an excellent search that you can look for it by words, or topics or themes to find different topics that you may be looking for. Yes, we have been encouraged by many, many people asking, more than encouraged, actually demanding, I can say, to publish something in writing that can be like a book that's like almost like an encyclopedia of taking the topics that we've covered, which have been hundreds and hundreds, which are uh, generated by you, listeners, who write questions in anonymously at our, I should mention now, the forum, which is again at chassidusapplied.com slash ask, you can write any question, nothing is off limits, nothing is taboo, and we'll cover them. We are always backlogged a bit, but we're moving along, and every week new questions are covered. I'm, constantly, I'm, I'm continuously fascinated by the fact that there are more questions that come in. Guess when you're really covering life, life does not have just a few questions. Every challenge, every issue that comes up poses another dilemma, and therefore questions that keep um, arising. So thank you for participating, and not just participating, really making it happen, both by listening, but even more so by, by generating and suggesting different questions. So please use that opportunity. And uh, so yes, we, ha- we have plans to do so. We obviously, everything is in Kemach and Teda. We need to have funding. So if someone's interested out there to help fund a project like that, which is to take these ideas and put them in some document form, meaning a digital form, a book form, so people can easily access them directly. And of course, edited, we would definitely be appreciative. And you can contact me directly at my email address, simon, S-I-M-O-N, at meaningfullife.com. Or you can write in the forum as well and just give us your contact info and we will 
communicate with you, reach out to you. Thank you for that. And uh, this is also a good opportunity that on every level we can use your support to dedicate a program or a series of programs to memory of a loved one or honor of a loved one. An excellent opportunity to reach thousands and thousands of people who are listening to this program and benefit from it in the merit and schus of someone you dedicate this program to. Okay, with that, questions. Question, the first question we're going to address today. According to Chassidus, what relationship should we have with the physical objects in our lives? Clothing, furniture, gifts we receive, antiques, etc. A little more spelled out. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, can we elevate all neutral objects? Like furniture, vessel, jewelry, ornaments, clothes, etc. Does Judaism believe this kind of objects have good, bad energy in them? What about pre-owned objects we receive as a gift, for example? What about antiques? Should we get rid of objects that we feel don't have good energy or should we try to elevate them? Thank you and blessings. Okay, very good question. Practical question. So this absolutely has what to say about it, starting from the Baal Shem Tov himself. There are things that Chassidus Chabad elaborates upon and you have to find it hinted to in the Baal Shem Tov. There are things the Baal Shem Tov himself addressed. In a number of places in the Tatus of the Baal Shem Tov, and for the record, most of the Tatus of the Baal Shem Tov, if not all, were spoken by the Baal Shem Tov and written down by his students. So we have the different Sfarim, whether it's whether Keser Shem Tov or Tzavos Arivosh, or the Teodos Yaakov Yesef and the other Sfarim that bring, uh, bring Ben Peris Yesef, and others that bring Tatus of Baal Shem Tov that have already been collected. There's a sefer called Baal Shem Tov I'm not going to go through all the literature of the Baal Shem Tov. So Baal Shem Tov in a number of places addresses this in a very direct way. And he says the following, paraphrasing. Everything that is in our possession, whether it's through ownership, meaning we, we bought it, or it was given to us as a gift, or you found it even. We're talking about al-pi'alocha, that you're allowed to keep it. Anything that comes your way means there's a reason it came your way. Based on the principle of Ashgocha Pratis, divine providence, it came your way because that item, that object, has in the divine sparks, because everything in existence would not exist if the divine purpose of that was not there. Nothing is here by accident. It came your way. It means that it has divine sparks, and it's part of the divine sparks allocated to you to elevate. So this would include furniture and, and clothing, everything. He also says when a person finishes, meaning let's say you either lose the object, or you give it away to somebody, or you sell it and so on, it means your role in elevating those sparks has come to an end. But as long as you have it, and you've obtained it, so what does that mean? That's not just there for your comforts, to use a table, a chair, jewelry, ornaments, or whatever it may be. It's for you to use it for a purpose that is divine. The end of Pirkei the end of chapter 6, we say, Everything God created in the world, He created, but not for any other purpose, but for His glory and honor. So, all your actions should be directed toward the sake of heaven. In all your ways you should know God, meaning in everything seeing the object or the item as an opportunity, a spiritual opportunity to grow personally and to make other people grow. Do you have a table? Not just to use it to sit by and read something or learn, or I'm sorry, to eat a meal, but to use it to learn Teda, to use the table to host guests. There you're using the table and elevating and directing its sparks toward the way they belong. 
And the same thing with everything else that belongs to us. Things that are prohibited, meaning you shouldn't own. So yes, those are things you should, you should don't belong to you. Those, those means the things you should refrain from and avoid. But that's not what we're addressing here. So that's number one. So this could be antiques. This can be anything. It could be lessons that it teaches us. It could be lessons you learn from it. And we have to be creative and we have to be uh, pro- proactive in seeing what can we learn or what can, how can we use this for some divine purpose. Okay. Now, as far as uh, you mentioned things, is there, is there good and bad energy? There's potential good, as the Altarebbe says in Tanya very clearly. In chapter 6, he says, Klippas Nega, which is really everything falls under the domain of Klippas Nega, except the things that are mitzvahs or the things that are asurim, that are not allowed, or the things that must be done. Klippas Nega is neutral. What's Klippas Nega? Literally, Klippas Nega means a husk, a, a translucent husk. You can see through it. Think of it like not a thick, a thick uh, shell, but like the shell of a, like the, the peel of a grape. What does that mean? Because the material world covers up, and it goes, but either way, you can use it for Gdusha. So food, food is klippasnega, kosher food. You can use it for Gdusha by using it to use the strength to do a mitzvah, to do good deeds, or God forbid, you can use that energy for something destructive. And then for lefisha, for temporarily, you've made it, you take that spark, and you're descending it, you're degrading it and defiling it, and putting it in the domain of Shalosh Klippus Atmeis, in the negative, the things that are considered to be negative energy. So you can't really call it negative and positive until a human being does something with it. So potentially everything can be done. You can take a knife and use it to cut a challah, God forbid. You can take a knife and hurt someone. So simple examples. So that's essentially what, uh, what as far as pre-owned goes, as I mentioned, if someone else owed them, means they had a time when they had to do their job with it, and now your role is now to use that object for the, the redeeming and elevating the sparks that are allocated to you. Now, as far as ever getting rid of objects, look, there are halachas, there are maybe having you think there's an object in your possession that's causing something negative, it has to be dealt with case by case. I'm trying to think of an example. You know, if there's something that's completely not prohibited, it shouldn't be by you. You, shouldn't, you should get rid of it. But destroying it is its repair. But things that, um, so you have to really give an example and then talk to Arav or talk to Mashpia and see maybe that thing doesn't belong in your life. Okay, so I think I answered that question. And it's a very good question because it touches upon literally our daily lives, every interaction, everything we possess, everything we own, and how we see it in the context of what Chassidus explains. It's not just yours to, to protect, or just yours to own, it's yours to elevate. That's the punchline. Next question. Next question is a topic I've talked about, but there are a lot of questions that come in. Either people have not heard me talk about it before, so I'm not going to uh, just ignore the question. I'll refer to where it was discussed, or sometimes add a few points. And there are, of course, recurrent themes that are in people's minds, so, um, so I obviously indulge that as well in a good way. So this is one about women having to cover their hair. The questioner asks briefly, what is the source and reason for married women covering their hair? So this is, I, I talked about at length. Let me read the question and then refer you to where I spoke about it and maybe add a line or two. Rabbi Jacobson, first bless you. Your classes have completely changed my look to life. Bless you. My silly question, which I know thousands of, or if not more, would benefit. I, don't, I want to just protest. There's no such thing as a silly question. Every question is a healthy question. 
question whether you know you. Sometimes, sometimes it's obvious answer, sometimes it's less obvious. So I just wanted to comment before I continue. But thousands of, of, of not more would benefit from. And here it is. Please, would you explain what and where does a woman covering her hair come from? Is it written in the Torah? Is it something that came later? There's many who have different explanations, but your source would be a direct message from our Rebbe. Is it for the tzniyas, the blessings for the husband and sons? Is it for the woman to know her length, her length and behavior to the outside? I guess her context, I'm not sure what this means. To know her role and behavior to the outside world. I cover my hair with a hat, half scarf, or kippah wig. I don't know if I feel I'm cheating and only doing half or don't connect to the actual covering due to lack of real explained meaning. I know so many women who are, at lo- who are lost who are at loss in whether to cover or not, and others who completely hate the idea. I feel a clear understanding, a meaningful message would help many. Obviously, choice to all, but a clear understanding would be a big clarity for many women. We know many women cover their hair differently. Does every style make a difference in life blessing? Your answer would mean the world, for you are a continuous light of the Rebbe's teachings. Bless you a hundredfold for your true work, making this world brighter, play, bright, a brighter place, Baruch Hashem. So let me first refer you where I discussed this at length. This is episodes 95 through 97, 95, 96, and 97, and episode 201. Why do I refer you there? Because there I did a far more comprehensive take on it. I don't want to, do the, I don't want to repeat what I've said then. There's no reason to. Same person speaking. You can just click. It's a few clicks away. But I will say the following. Um, it is absolutely based on Teda. It is the Chazal learned derived it from different verses. One about Pasha Nase, where it talks about the Seita, about them uncovering her hair, which applies that she covered her hair, and other places. Especially when you go into the area of Zohar and the works of Kabbalah and Chassidus, there they talk about the power of hair, this powerful, powerful power, erratic power of hair, which is rooted in very deep spiritual places, which is what I elaborated upon back then in those episodes. Most people are simply not aware. They just think it's some type of either Gzeda Sarkosov, you know, or just a nuisance. So it's rooted in real sources. The Rebbe, of course, made a big fuss about it and asked women specifically, personally, to cover their hair. And Dafka with a shaitl, not with a tichl, as elaborated then there as well. Above all, to put, just put it briefly, hair, whether we know it or not, is a powerful sexual energy. And just like we cover other parts of the body, why do we cover it? Not because it's ugly, not because we're ashamed, not because it's disgraceful, but like we cover the holy of holies. The holiest part of our beings we cover out of respect, out of dignity, out of preserving it to be experienced in the purest possible way. We live in a world that is far from pure, so it needs a protection, it needs to be covered to protect it, to be used in the, in the clearest way without any contamination, if you wish. A woman's hair falls into that category. Sar, Isha, Erva, the Gemara says. But people misunderstand what it means. They think it's a negative. It's a positive. It has power. Sar, Isha means a woman's hair. Now, of course, the question is, so why do girls who are before marriage don't cover? Why do men not have to cover their hair? And all the different things. That I leave to referring to when I spoke about it then at length. And I say again at length, relatively speaking, to this program. So in this case, I just want to conclude with this. Here has a tremendous amount of power. And just like a human being has power in general, the feminine energy is very strong. When it's channeled and harnessed well, it can change worlds. 
when unfortunately it's abused or violated or not used well, it can actually also change worlds, but in the negative way. And that is why it's so vital, and the, the Rebbe made a very big thing about it, based on the Zayr and the, yes, the words, that, the great blessings that it comes from it, the Gemara that talks about it as well, the woman that never uncovered her hair, even her hair was never exposed, even the walls of her house, meaning even when she was alone, and what the generations that grew out of that, the blessings that she received for it. So it's a source of tremendous blessing because the hair is a power of energy, powerful, powerful energy. So when harnessed properly, it brings great blessings. Let's stick to the positive side. How each, each person, each woman should adapt this and assimilate it in her life, go step by step, learn about it. The more you know, the more informed you are, I think the more you'll be able to embrace it and see it as a beautiful thing and like a crown a person wears on their head, not as a nuisance or just a bother or something that uh, you're doing without any logic behind it. Okay. The next question, which is also a topic that comes up once in a while and I've addressed as well, is the topic of superstition. What attitude should we have to a superstition, ayin hara, and the likes? I don't know if I bunch all those exactly together. Superstition is glachtusim, meaning complete nonsense, superstition. Ayin hara, there is a concept. The question is what attitude? So let me read the question more in detail, then I'll give you my response and, ref- and first reference to previous episode. Dear Rabbi Simon, bless you 120 years for your endless kind work in this world. Rabbi, would you please give a few words regarding superstition, evil eye, and Yetzirah? Please guide, direct many I know with this empty, exhausting mind game. Thank you, Rabbi Simon. So episode 99, one episode. I addressed this topic, um, quoting that the Rebbe said that Ainhod uh, affects only those that believe in it. So, the, so let's just start from the beginning. And I'll, again, just sum up, because more of the elaborate was discussed back in that episode. In Tomim Ti Hashem is the general principle in this week's Parshas Sheftim. We're going to be reading that next week, after the A, that is. Walk innocently, if you wish, simply plainly with, God, with your God. In other words, don't look for gimmicks or tricks, which is a fundamental principle in general in Yiddishkeit. Do things called the poshet mailitve, in a simple, direct way. When people start looking for gimmicks, whether it's astrology or psychics and so on, even if there's legitimacy to some of that, and I've talked about this, it's not the way of the Teda. The Teda is a responsible approach to life. The fact that there are forces at work and it's very exotic and we're curious can also border on the sensational. So that's why when it comes to all types of things like superstitious things, people have different antics they go through because of their fears of a, of a curse or something like that. It's not the tater way. We're not under the control of mazolus, we're told. Even though there are mazolus, mazolus are signs, the constellations. Because God governs the world with certain rules. So when you subject yourself to that, you are giving it power. Now it has power, but it doesn't mean you have to be subject to its powers. Like a lot of things in life, we all have pre, predispositions. That doesn't mean you have to give in to them. That's why a human being has self-control. So superstition in general, meaning taking anything and giving it some type of power over you, is not a general Jewish interior approach. And this does not contradict the fact that there are interpretations to dreams and yes, uh, there is a concept of mazel, we say mazel tov, 
These are things I've spoken about as well in previous episodes, including back in 99, episode 99. Ayin Hara. So we have canine Hara, we say. There should be no evil eye. And we have, you see, before a bris, a child is born, you put up all kinds of different, different kameas and other things that are so-called to ward off any negative energy. There's the concept of negative energy. The question is, does it control your life? And the answer is absolutely not. It does not control your life. It can control your life if you allow it in. It's like anything. It's like a human being. There are people, for example, that are difficult to deal with. And they really get on our nerves. But you control whether they'll get to you or not. If you allow them in, yes, then you'll be, then you'll be vulnerable to them. If you allow yourself, you immunize yourself, you allow yourself to rise above, they won't affect you. We have that ability. Doesn't mean it's always easy, and there's different ways and methods. Here's not the place to discuss it. The same thing is with the positive and neg- negative energies out there. So that's the general answer. Yetzirah, we all have a Yetzirah, that's an evil inclination, doesn't mean you have to act on it. The whole Tanya is based on controlling that and directing it and harnessing it in the right direction. So, and above all, to be afraid, to go to sleep with fear or to tremble, and people literally are afraid because of, they think there's a curse upon them, in letter after letter after letter, when the Rebbe writes about these things, he always dismisses it, saying it doesn't, has no control over you, think and trust in God, think good, it will be good, and all different expressions, teaching us what, not that there is a negative energy, that it does not, has no power over you, that's a big key thing. And if you want a simple example, based on Tanya chapter 26, where he talks about what depression does, doesn't get, it demoralizes you not to feel the strength that you have to wrestle with your enemy. So in psychological warfare, every sports, athletics, and even natural war, how much of it is psychological? If you think your enemy is stronger than it really is, you allow it, you give it power. When you think the enemy is not as strong, you wean away its power and you become stronger. So this, of course, applies to every area of life. Okay. It's about empowerment. Knowing you have a neshama, and your neshama is stronger than all these forces. That doesn't mean these forces you don't contend with, but there's ways to approach it. And we'll be reading in a few weeks. You'll go out to war. You're always above your adversary. Okay. Next. Next question is this. Do current events have any deeper connection with the Hebrew dates when they occur? And here's how it was phrased. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. I find that many historic events that the President of the United States declares or other similar events happen on special days in the Jewish or even Chabad calendar. He refers to a few examples. This was written a while ago. So he's referring to, he says, everyone found out back in November, in, I'm sorry, in uh, February 14th, 2019, the president's concrete intention on declaring national emergency and funding building a wall. And what was that connected to? What day was that? I'm not even sure. Would the Rebbe say anything about what we can learn from this by Fabrengen, this Shabbos, if this was prior to, for example, Gimel Tammuz? I'm speaking about what we can learn from this and not if a wall is right or wrong, if building a wall is right or wrong. Oh, it happened on Tessadr, that was it. The ninth of other when the Friedrich Rebbe came to America. Tessadr is a special day. Did the Friedrich Rebbe speak about a wall or its significance on this day or the tenth of other when he initially came to America? 
looking forward to hearing something insightful. So this, of course, applies across the board, any type of event. The answer goes back to what I mentioned before about objects, the Balshamtav Hashgacha Pratis. There's Hashgacha Pratis to the extent that Rebbe once mentioned, I think from the, was it the Chassam Sefer? I'm not sure if he mentioned who it was, that they would learn lessons even when they traveled on a train and the train had a number on it. If you were in number one, number two, number three, there were lessons learned from those numbers. You could say it's completely random. You could have been in the other car. But there's no such thing as random. So applying it to this even more so, things that happen a particular day, yes, have a connection to the day. Sometimes it's obvious, sometimes it's not obvious. There's expression in the Gemara, Megalgin schus liyem zake, and also on the negative, which means Megalgin schus. Megalgin means it uh, like turns, like a wheel. That ends up being that something of merit happens to take place. Megalgin, it's like rolled to, is directed to, but I'm trying to find the exact words. It's like rolling that schus. Hashem makes sure that that schus is rolled until it reaches the yem zake, the meritus, the meritus day where that. Uh, Merit belongs. And the same thing in a negative thing. So things that happen on Tisha B'av, first Tisha B'av was when the Maraglim came back and made the Jewish people cry over the bad report about Eretz Yisrael. On that day would later be the five tragic events that the Mishnah says, including the destruction, the burning down of the first temple and the second temple, and the other events that happened. Same thing with the 17th of Thomas on the negative. On the positive, yes, you could have events that happen on first day of Pesach or on Purim or on Sukkot. So it's not a random thing. If it happened, it means it's connected in some way to the positive or negative energy of, the, of that particular day. Because remember, time is energy and every day has its particular. Now, to go bend backwards and try to find the connection, sometimes it'll be obvious, sometimes Hashem doesn't make it obvious. So I don't know if we have to turn it into a study, but the general answer is yes, but we don't have to go crazy to find it, because if we need to find it, we'll be told, and sometimes it's very obvious. And the Rebbe often, in Fabrengans, would take the day of the calendar, using a sefer called Var Yeme, would say things happen on that day, and look what happened now, Shkachapratis on that day. So clearly we can derive from that there's connections. And this can be connected also to our birthdays and other special events in our lives. But as I said again, don't, we don't want to turn this into a sensational journey. We want to be a meaningful, a meaningful one with responsible conclusions, which means it should lead us to good actions. That's the bottom line, that when you see something of schus comes of your way on a certain day, happens on your birthday or happens on another special day, to turn it into, okay, so that lesson for me is that I should increase in good deeds connected to that particular schus, that particular merit. And not just stick to the sensational component. Ah, look what happened on that day. Wow, isn't it interesting? It's not enough, just interesting. It has to lead us to some Avedis Hashem, some Hira, some directive in our serving God in becoming better people and better Jews and better relationship both with Hashem and Benodam Lechavere with others. Okay. Next question. Do you recommend reading books on intimacy by known rabbis and teachers? So examples were sent to me, but as usual, I don't like to mention names of authors or books, especially if it's, an, if it's people throwing aspersions or questions or doubts on, those, on, the, on the validity of those books. So let's just keep it in general. The person writes, I don't know if you've read this in this book, but do you recommend that Chassidim should read it? I don't mean to put you at odds with that author or different authors that have written different books, 
But I want to have a non-biased opinion, not by the author, obviously, but someone who's not written it. And I trust a worthy opinion. I'm a bachar, and I want to know I should read it, or should I wait till I get married, or should I never read it? So I want to expand on the questions. This is not about, every book, obviously, is the the responsibility of the author. If it's a legitimate rabbi and teacher and is respected and trusted and in general is proven to be someone that's as an authority, so that's what defines what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. If there's a question mark because the book may be controversial or there are different opinions, so there I would refer you to your rav, your mashpia, let them give you their opinion. Overall, in a broader way, you could say is, should we be reading books altogether on matters of this nature, even if they're written by rabbis and teachers? Maybe their intention is to reach people who don't learn Tera. If you can learn it directly in the original sources of Chassidus and in Tera, why do you need to read books? On the other hand, sometimes a book presents it, in a, presents it in, a, in a palatable way, in a way that's accessible and easier to use. I mean, I wrote a book toward a meaningful life. So there is a chapter on intimacy there. I'm biased. Would I say go read that instead of reading the Sikhs or Tater? Absolutely not. But if it could help explain Tater or present Tater in a relevant way, then perhaps. But that you have to look, ask your Rav Mashpia. Generally speaking, um, but then there's, then there's, of course, the question whether, whether should a book be written on these topics. There have been books written, even though they're written, even if they're correct technically, do you write a book, a whole book on intimacy, for example? It's a good question. Because you can write everything right, but, but intimacy, by definition, maybe shouldn't be written about. Maybe it should be more of a discrete approach. On the other hand, you could say we live in a world today that people are not going to all come to you for personal advice. So write a book can actually help people discover a deeper and more sacred view on intimacy. So arguments go back and forth. And that's why you have to come down to who is the person asking the question. Is it a 17-year-old bachar should be reading a book on intimacy in English? Probably not. If he's getting married and that book is well recommended and well sourced and grounded and tater based. So okay, so it's like learning uh, chosen classes or kala classes. So again, it depends on where you are, who you are, and what you need. Um, you know, someone had given me an example of a book years ago. Someone had written about intimacy. Some people loved the book; it was really helpful to them. Others did not. You know, different people have different views on a book. But someone asked me. I said, "Look, you can write. You can write a book about sneers in a very non-sneerzdic way." A person could stand on Brooklyn Bridge and talk about the beauty of, the, of modesty and standing there in a way that's immodest. So what do you say about that? Obviously, there's a confusion there. You can't talk about modesty in an immodest way. It has to be talked about in a modest way. But as I said, there are many arguments of the case because we live in a world where sometimes desperate times need desperate measures, but always in the context of halacha, with sneers, with subtlety, that I was very careful. In my chapter on intimacy and toward a meaningful life, I quote a letter from the Rebbe about teaching children or teaching students about matters of intimacy that the Rebbe takes very care in saying it should be done very discreetly by a teacher who presents it discreetly and subtly, not in a way that's provocative or sensational or controversial. So talking about these matters always needs great care. And sometimes that's the, so you could say the right thing, but the wrong way. And there's another thing that you have to consider. So I'm not going to paskin or rule here on a particular book, on a particular author, or on a particular person, because there's so many factors involved. But I do believe I just put things into a framework, frame the question in a way that hopefully, that when you ask your mashbir rav, you can get a very clear answer what is fitting for you under those circumstances. Right. Next question. 
Why is there so much conflict? Why is there such conflict about saying Yechi? So those of you listening don't know what that is. Maybe it's better that way. Here's the way the question was phrased in full entirety, in its entirety. Why is, it the, why is that the opposition of Yechi has to do with Gimel Tammuz? In other words, post-Gimel Tammuz began the disagreements. Why do Lubavitchers have to argue? Isn't it pretty clear that the Rebbe said that the nation should say Yechi to add highest energy, vitality to the Melech, to the king? That's Beis Nisan Tov Shemem Ches, just for the source. And if, and if for whatever reason you don't say Yechi, why do you have to argue, not meaning you, but rather Lubavitch as a whole? So firstly, let me refer you to episodes 46 and 264 where I spoke about the topic. Arguments are never good. Let's start with a, a clear statement. Arguments is that people should not argue. I'm not talking about arguments L'shem Shamayim, where you're arguing the subtleties of a pshat or the direct interpretation like Shamei and Hillel or other explanations and understanding Teir. But if an argument becomes personal and becomes negative and becomes uh, critical and, pers- and personalized, that's never a good thing. Even if one person is right, one person is wrong, there's ways to disagree in a loving way, in a kind way, and never in a way that's, that's condescending and judgmental and all the other negative things. So that's clear and must be stated. So I have the same question as you. I don't understand why any people argue. I understand people can become passionate and very strong, and some people say, by saying it, you're causing damage, so therefore I'm angry, not because I'm angry, because you're causing the damage to the Rebbe, the Chabad, and the Chassidus, and so on. But sometimes I see, is it really, really purely for the cause, or are you personally angry? That needs to also be determined. And the same with the other way around. Those that say, you don't say it, means you're a kafir, you don't believe, you're a deny, and they get angry. So I don't see the anger, the personalizing, you have a disagreement, let it be a disagreement. And always looking at the Sefer, seeing what the Rebbe said, how different people interpret it. And yes, before Gimel Tammuz, there was more consensus, and later more disagreement. What does that say about everything? I'm not even going to go into that right now, because it's not really relevant. I just want to make the point that Machlekes is never good disagreements. I'm not going to go explain why there are disagreements, try to justify it. I do understand sometimes the reasons, but that doesn't mean it has to, that's correct. I think if everybody lowered the volume and lowered the temperature, we'd always be healthier. And you can have a legitimate conversation what the Rebbe meant and what way to do it, or whether it's something where, you know what, live and let live, do whatever you see fit, and you don't have to become an anti or become a, a for, and be more neutral about it, those that want to say it personally. Definitely people should not impose their opinion on others. Different people have different needs, different people have different meanings in it. And more than that, I already rely on what I've discussed in the pre- those previous episodes. Okay. I just I wanted to refer to intimacy in the previous topic. I forgot to cross-reference. I also spoke about what is healthy intimacy and how to present it in episodes 59, 151, and 272. Okay. One more question, then we'll do question, then the essays. That's the lay of the land. Next question. Does iskafia apply to pregnant women? To a pregnant woman. Thank you for your wonderful classes. I've gained so much and I'm sure a lot of time and effort goes into preparing. I do appreciate it. I've been learning the daily tanya over the last couple of days and hearing a lot about iskafia. Controlling one's desires. Some people call it refraining, abstaining. Does iskafia apply to a pregnant woman? If yes, how can she implement it when it comes to cravings that she has, etc.? I know that Shulchan Aruch does not take this matter lightly because it discusses it during the 
because it discusses it during the halachas of fasting Yom Kippur. What does Chassidus have to say about this? Thank you. So first I want to refer you to episode 207. As a, it's not a direct topic covered there, but just it touches upon some of these topics. Let's begin very basic here. comes to a pregnant woman. comes to anything connected to life, the bearing of life, the preserving of life, health. You shall live by Teda, not God forbid the opposite. And we completely focus, per primary number one, is the welfare of that person, the pregnant woman, and of course the child she's carrying with her. And that's why when it comes to fasting or other things, we find all kinds of leniencies, and we don't look to be more firm than God in this, or more firm in general. Now, it comes to Yom Kippur, yes, it's a very, Yom Kippur is the most serious day. So Rabbanim will give you an answer. Pregnant women will be very lenient. If there's even a doubt, if it doesn't make a difference, or it's not any, any risks, it's another story, and Rabbanim will address that, and I'm not going to paskin on those matters. As far as Iskafia, Iskafia is Avedis Hashem, a pregnant woman, her being pregnant is the greatest iskafia. The discomfort she has to endure. Not that I know of it firsthand, but I understand it and I witnessed it. The discomfort she has to endure, the, the nausea, the, all the other pains that are involved that came because of Chetay Sadas is the greatest iskafia. Why would she want to... It's, just, it's part of the process. So I don't think a pregnant woman has to look for new additional iskafias. She has a craving... It's a craving because she's pregnant. It's not a craving because she only has a taiva. Why God made that she should have a craving? Now, if a woman feels a craving that she thinks is inappropriate or she wants to limit it to curb it, that's her personal thing. But I'm not going to hear, and I don't think any rov or mashpia should get involved in that. That's her personal thing. But even there, I would say, take it easy. Your biggest iskafia is what you're going through in having a child. The Mrs. Nefesh of a mother bearing a child. And that iskafia outweighs all other iskafias. That's my... Short and sweet answer on this matter. And be, be, be at ease and at comfort. You're doing the greatest possible thing. You're bringing a God's and Shama, a soul into a new child, into a new person. And that is the greatest schus, the greatest merit. And everything else, the shadow is over, is, uh, pales in comparison. So save a scafia for other times, or save it in general, especially once you're a mother, a nursing mother, a mother that's given birth to that child, a kippatan, whatever they call it. So it extends even after the pregnancy. And the iskafi has to be used with discretion. I generally think that the iskafi, maybe your husband should be practicing more iskafi and some of the men who often, I was remember once uh, being in a delivery room, uh, not delivery room, I never didn't want that, in the delivery department, and I was out in the hall, and I saw a guy, his wife is being carried into um, to, to, to deliver. She was, she was expecting it, but baby was about to be born. And he faints, not she, he faints. So he probably should be doing a little more iskafia, uh, especially he didn't have to endure any of that pain. And uh, that doesn't mean iskafia doesn't apply to women in general, but in general iskafia is more of a, I would say, to curb and to tame the more masculine uh, aggression than the women's gentleness. Now everybody can use it to some extent, but I think I put it in the context I wanted to. But it's a good question and thank you for that. Okay, follow-up. So the first follow-up we're going to do is something from episode 248, a little while back. They're talking about the topic of a male mashpia for women. And of course, basically negating the idea, definitely on, a, definitely on a permanent or on an ongoing level. We're not talking about a lecture or something like that. So that was back in 248, and you can look it up. But here someone sent a follow-up. 
Amazing how many people mislisten to what you say or miss the nuance. Anyway, my father has told over the following. I hope I have all the details correct. If you want to say it over, you can always confirm with him. Well, my father was a younger man, married, I think, two, three years, and teaching high school girls in Detroit. Rab Mendel Fatifas used to come visit every year. He would go to the boys' classes, if I heard them, test them, and give out rojan kesu mandlin, raisins and almonds. My father asked him to come to his girls' class, and Rab Mendel declined. Upon further discussion, my father figured out he didn't want to come because it was a girls' class. So my father asked, I'm a younger man, and I'm allowed to teach them? Am I allowed to teach them? But you, I'm a young man, I'm allowed to teach them. But you, an elder chassid, older chassid, with a white beard, with a white beard, can't come talk to them for a few minutes? Ramendel responded, If I'm an older chassid, as you put it, be quiet and listen to what I said. That's the story. I've never heard a good explanation to the story of the story. My guess is as good as yours. But the only thing I can come up with is that in our generation, the Rebbe gave us special keiches to deal with various shlichis, various missions as needed. And maybe Rabendel said this was a thing he had to learn to develop at his stage. Anyway, I think, as I explained it back then, it's pretty clear the approach to take to this. But since this came in as a story, I added to the equation, to the record. Now, vaccines still, no more questions coming in, thank God. Well, I don't know if thank God is the right way. I think we covered almost everything. But since there are some questions I didn't address, I thought I would take one more and then slowly either finish up with it. But this was covered in episodes 269 through 273. So we covered it pretty extensively, probably more than most topics. So one more question I'll read. In response to your answer about the Rebbe's view on vaccination, I would like to ask a follow-up question. If a family has a child who had an adverse reaction to a vaccine, such as repetitive seizures, what would the Rebbe's view be on vaccinating other children in the same family? Would this, would this still be the same if there are other members of the extended family have also had the same and other adverse reactions? Would the Rebbe's view of getting a second opinion from a doctor who is expert in the subject matter, one who acknowledges adverse reaction to vaccines, be relevant in this type of case? Would this be an exception to the rule? Is this something the Rebbe discussed? The Rebbe, above all, this isn't just the Rebbe. The Rebbe is going with Teda approach. I'm responding. The Teda approach is You have to be a healthy person. The Teda gives, gives permission to legitimate, authoritative, and appropriate and responsible doctors to determine what's a healthy situation. That's halacha says. If you want to know what is health, is it danger to someone, is it not danger, you ask a doctor. And then the Teda is giving that, whatever the doctor says, Two opinions, three opinions, bottom line, the consensus of the doctors. Then the Teda gives the power of Teda to that issue, just like a Psach If indeed there's a verse reaction, the Rebbe is not going to say, go give a vaccine and put the child in danger. Obviously, the answer is, as the doctor, let the doctor, the personal family doctor or someone who knows the situation, and say, what should we do? We have one child that has adverse reactions. Should we risk it with another child? And let the doctor make the decision. If you see in the family people are reversed, they're allergic or something else, obviously the vaccine is not the right thing to do because of the risks. This is part of medical decisions made all the time. It's not only vaccinations, in many areas. You go to a doctor, they find that you're allergic to certain things, they're not going to give you a medication, or they may not do certain interventions, etc., etc. 
So the Rebbe has definitely spoken about this, but the, the answer is always the straight answer, which is that, what the medical profession has to say. Not quack doctors, not only marginal, but get good doctors. If you need more than one opinion, get more than one opinion, get the consensus, do due diligence, do what's necessary. We're talking about lives here. And the risk, and if there are risks, absolutely, look at it. All that we spoke about was the Rebbe said that there are vaccines and other things that have gone through testing and have been proven to work. Does that mean 100%? Obviously, there's always going to be exceptions. That's why we have to use our wisdom, but we have to also understand that there is a tater approach and a medical approach to things, and you have to weigh everything into account. There are many people who take vaccines and don't have adverse reactions. Remember, we have to remember that as well. So all things have to be taken into account. Okay. Another question was regarding this. Regarding vaccination, what does tried and proven mean? What does reliable manufacturers mean when manufacturers have liability removed? Why is it so vital? Why is it vital for children to receive the flu shot and varicella? What about kids that have serious reaction and parents fears for their life, but according to law, still can't get a medical exemption? Look, I don't know every nuance and every detail, but we live in a world where you have pretty much freedom to do things. So, so taking one question at a time. Tried and proven, there's words in halacha what means tried and proven. If something has been proven for a period of time and you have a consensus of enough legitimate doctors that say this is acceptable, and yes, the doctors are objective. If you prove that the doctors are subjective and they're biased and prejudiced because they were bought off is one thing. That would be tried and proven, like anything in life. How do you know if someone's a tried and proven um, pharmacist, a tried and proven uh, carpenter, a tried and proven plumber? a tried and proven contractor. You ask around, you get references, and you find a consensus on it. Reliable manufacturers, the same thing. Like in any business, when you're going to buy a product from a business, are they reliable? Can they be trusted? There are ways to do research on these matters. If you start tearing everybody apart, there's no company on earth. Forget about medical and pharmaceutical, which may be more abused than others. There's always going to be issues. That's why you need to do, do research improperly. Why they need the flu shots or a cell of that, you have to ask a doctor. I'm not going to answer that question. And if there are reactions and side effects, I just discussed that, obviously that has to be taken into account. Okay, let's go now to the Chassidus question. Mm -hmm. Chassidus question is in short like this. How can we make sense of the different ways that Jews practice Judaism when we have only one God and one Teda? Here's how the questioner writes it out in more detail. Serious uncertainty, he titles it, or it's a she, I'm not sure. I have a question that has been bothering me for some time. Much of the study of Judaism, such as the Talmud, is filled with debates. Even in Jewish law, there is debate, such as between the Rambam and his colleagues, or the Beis Yosef, and Rav Isolis, the Ramah, Ramesh Isolis. But from what I've learned, that all, makes sense, that all makes sense because there can be truths on different spiritual levels. And the origin of the sages' souls also matters. Yes, he's referring to, just to elaborate, they have, for example, Shammai coming from Gvura, Hillel from Chesed, that that affects their opinions. But what I really do not understand is how there can be two practical truths, as in how do Svadim and Ashkenazim hold differently in actual practice, or how is there a difference, different versions of prayer books? I don't mean a minor custom or stringency, rather I mean real big differences. How can there be an argument about if the Tater should have an Aleph or a Hey, 
by Pesuadaka. And different people do different things. One is for sure wrong. Do we need to wear a hat and jacket for, le- for, da- for davening? Do people that do not want wear one do something they should not? As it would it be ideal for all to wear a jacket and hat? Like did God want different laws for different Jews, not better or worse, just different? Where do we see that this was God's intention? How do we know that this is what God wanted and not some technicality? I understand it is all divine providence, but is there a source for this idea? Can you find these ideas in the Torah? To summarize, how does it make sense that there can be two Jews practicing Judaism two different ways if we have one God and one Torah? Okay. So first I refer you to episode 92 where I discuss some of this. But let's, let's, uh, let's just step back a bit. And Chassidus does address this directly. And not only Chassidus, other Svarim as well. So first of all, let's start from all the way from the beginning. Teda is God's blueprint for life. Which means, He looked into the Teda and with that he created the world. In Medrash the expression is that like an architect uses Pisrois or Pinkasois, a blueprint, the Teda is that blueprint. So Teda is not just laws superimposed over existence, it's actually the creator of existence is telling us the halachas and Teda what apply to each situation. The same God that created the blueprint for the universe, the universe meaning all of us as well, the human beings, created human beings diverse. We're not clones. Ain deus sein shavis, our minds think differently. Ain parts of fein shavis, our faces look differently. So even though we all originate from Adam Adishan, as the Mishnah says in Sanhedrin, that we all from Chesme, from the seal of Adam, from the original parent, Adam and Chava, but each one has a different variation. We're a lot, a lot of things that are similar, but we have different variations. So how does then the Tater fit to that? Does the Tater want one way for everybody to do the same thing? When people have different approaches to things. Look in Parsha Nosei, and you see all the Nesim, the leaders of the tribes, they brought Karbonus to dedicate the Mishkan, the temple. And it repeats the same thing. They all brought the same thing, the wagons and the Karbonus, the offerings, and so on and so forth. Ask the Rebbe, why do you have to repeat it again and again? Say it once and say the rest. Brought the same thing. To make the emphasis that even though they brought the same object, they brought it with a different kavona. Because Ruven has one role, Shimon has another. That's why when they cross Kriyos Yamsuf, everyone went on their path. So there are things that equalize and are common denominator among us all. Shabbos. But how do you keep Shabbos? I'm not talking about the halachas now, the spirit of Shabbos. We all say Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. But what's the kavon in the Echad, in the Shema? Even the same person shouldn't have the same kavon intention when they say Shema different times of the day. Definitely two different people. So they could have, we could be doing the same thing but with different intentions. We could also be doing this, the, the, the purpose of it is the same and doing it in different ways. Rashi and Rabbeinu Tam Tfilm. Both are there to be Meshabed, the love, and the Meach, to bind the mind and the heart. But Rashi held that the parshas are, the four chapters are written, are placed in a certain order, and Rabbeinu in a different order. Each one thought that was the way, because the Teda itself did not spell it out. So it's very likely during Meshach Rabbeinu's times, there were those that put it on, like way later Rashi would be called Rashi's film, and some Rabbeinu Tam's film. Pesach. So Sfarim did not have the issue of kidneys, like rice. For whatever reasons, we're not getting now with it, the mixing and so on. So that means they're not keeping Pesach. In their communities, 
Pesach, all the all the power of Pesach is done, even though they eat kidneys. There's no, there's no, they're not in any way more lenient. So even not just an intention that Shammai is chesed, and Hillel is chesed, but also in halacha you could have different pesukim. In the city of Rav, the halacha was like Rav. In the city of Shmuel, the halacha was like Shmuel. Each one had their way. They had their students that were aligned in that path. There are times where in Teda, in history, they decided to make a achra, which means that even though there were two approaches halachically, like Shammai and Hillel, the students of Shammai followed Hillel's rulings. The students of Hillel followed the Hillel's rulings. And Tender came a Baskal that said, no, time has come that we should find one halacha that everybody's going to follow. So when those instances happen, that becomes the ruling. That still does not negate Shammai's theory. It's still legitimate in the world of Gvura, Shammai's theory, but in action, even Shammai has to behave like Hillel. The, the, and where did we know this from? Achrei Rabim Lahates. There's a postage in Mishpatim that says, follow the consensus. What do you mean the consensus? The Torah says, do this, don't do that. So the Medrash and the Chazal explain. Because when Moshe was on the mountain, Hashem didn't just gave him laws. There were things, Halach Moshe Messinai, Bar Mitzvah is at 13, Bas Mitzvah at 12, different Shiurim. There were things in the written Torah, this is it, Tefillin, Shabbos. But then there was a lot of nuances. How do you do Shabbos exactly? When it says don't light a fire on Shabbos, does that mean not to light a fire or not to sit in, in light like the, like the, like the Tzdukim interpreted so the Hashem taught Moshe, Tater B'Pidusha Nitna, Tater with its commentary, and explained. And he said, here's a way to interpret it like this. 49 ways to interpret this way, 49 ways to interpret it that way. So Moshe is waiting and saying to Hashem, no. So Hashem says, I'm giving you the theories. Now you guys have to discuss it. You guys, meaning the people, the B'nai Tater, the Sanhedrin. And follow the consensus. Now, consensus could be one way, and then the next generation can be a different consensus. And there are things that are rulings that remain those rulings. And there are things till this day that are done by different communities in different ways. All this, on the contrary, demonstrates the beauty of a teta applying, to the, applying itself to the diversity of life. And yet there's a tremendous harmony. Because we're all doing with the same, ultimately the same purpose, just different ways. So that accounts for the differences while it being a teda achas and Hashem achod. That that achdus manifests itself in many different applications, all with the same unifying spirits, all to connect to God. There's no such thing as a mitzvah that's not connected to God, God forbid. But how the connection and the details, that can be different from one community to the next, from one pasak to another pasak, even in action. So I hope that covers, answers the question. And, uh, and uh, with that, we go over to the essays of this week. So we've been doing, every week we do three essays. This is from the last essay contest, 2019. Top, these are still the top 50, 60 essays among the hundreds and hundreds that came in. So essay number one is, let me just get my papers here. To be free from fear, Moshe Backman, age 27, Kingston, Pennsylvania. Teacher at Cheder Menachem, Lezern, Kingston, Pennsylvania. Upon hearing these words from his father, Yisrael became an orphan. Yisrael meaning the Baal Shem Tov. Fear is a natural feeling, a response that results from situations of vulnerability and possible danger. One would expect a child at the tender age of five 
having lost both parents with vast unknown and impending difficulties, to drown in his worries. With this message, which his father left him, though, he would grow to be the Baal Shem Tev and develop the Hasidic approach to overcoming, overcoming all life's challenges. And that is, of Yisrael, fear nothing but God. He goes on to analyze this very powerful essay, the challenge of fear, the proper approach of dealing with it, the responsibility, and implementing it in action. A good essay, excellent essay, and this essay is posted, as we speak, is being posted at chassidahsupplied.com, as well as the other two essays. You can also receive them in your inbox when you subscribe to our emails. The next essay is Soul Challenge by Moses Perez, Perez, age 25, Cordoba, Argentina, student Mayanot Men, and his job is being an, is an entrepreneur. And he writes, Soul Challenge. Imagine we had the possibility to observe our world from above. What would we see? We would see a complex world with landscapes, towering mountains, blue lakes, exotic beaches, and a network of roads. Goes on to describe. But there's also another reality, the one experienced by those who live in homes which lack values. There are people who live with little hope, lives full of anger and intolerance, divorce and infidelity, disloyalty and unhappiness. In this essay, we want to raise the root of the problem and possible solution using the Hasidic concepts of the godly soul and the animal soul. And basically, the two perspectives on life, understanding the root of our habit, analyzing child behavior, how do these habits affect adults, how can we change them, animal soul versus godly soul, and then application in everyday situations. Paradigm shift from animal vision to human vision, soul challenge, our choice. Yes. So another comprehensive essay on this topic, the challenges where you see life on one hand, the beauty. On the other hand, we see the challenges and how to deal with that. Good. Very good essay. And finally, a Hebrew essay, Geva Mishkel Umeinut Sa'adim. Okay, height, weight, and measuring steps. Basically, pacing life. He writes in Hebrew, I'm translating, paraphrasing, translating loosely. All of us want to be successful. But we see that in actuality, it only comes intermittently. And we're still looking for ways to find success. And to say, I'm a successful person. And especially these challenges in the 21st century has unique elements to it. So what is the fa- definition of success? What considered success before we describe whether we are successful? So in this essay, we're going to attempt to answer the question through three tools, according to Chassidus. Goiva, height, mishkal, weight, and and pacing yourself step by step. And he takes those three so-called measuring ways, measuring rods, and applies it to life. Very interesting essay, very creative. And uh, applies it to different situation, life situations with a conclusion of how one reaches real success. A lot of good stories, a lot of good anecdotes. I, I personally enjoyed this essay. I enjoyed most of the essays, all the essays. I could say each one has their own flavor. As I mentioned before, the diversity of different perspectives. So with that, we conclude this week's My Life Chassidah Supplied, episode 274. Everyone should have this coming Shabbos a very powerful Rish should be a blessed Chedesh where we make an accounting for the past year and a preparation for the new year. 
since Hamishas above, there's a custom already to wish each other Ksiva Vichsimateva. Some people write that it's the Rosh, it's the Gematria of Hamishas above. And therefore I, I extend, use this opportunity to extend Aksiva Vichsimateva Begashmis and Baruchnis to everyone. In the month of Ella, we begin to also sign our letters that way, blessing people. And it should be a blessed year, a year of Gu'ula, Hamitis Vashlema. And that should happen even before the new year, ready before Elul. Going from Av, the month of Av, that turns right away into a month of Gula, and therefore we'll march into Elul and to Tishrei with the Gula, Amitis Vashlema, with Mashiach Sitkenu. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. My Life Chassidah Supplied. Thank you so much.